o'clock on the Monday, and you know what that means. Live TV filled with disasters. Yeah, baby. <laughs> this week, starring special guest star, Mr. Jeff Freundlich. Yeah. This is so cool. I'm seeing all these people, you know, I, like I'm seeing names, and these are people that we've signed music from. Yeah. You know, that's pretty and they cool. Had hey, no Sherry. Idea, they had no idea you were going to be on the show. Wow. I'm glad you can read that because I can't from here. Um, anyway, yes, this is Jeff Freundlich. He's a dear friend of mine and a longtime friend of Taxis. Uh, our two companies have worked seamlessly together now for probably close to 15 years. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, Jeff's the co-founder and COO of World Music Publishing, which is the parent company of the boutique indie record label Fervor Records, uh, and home to numerous ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC publishing affiliates. He's one of the very best and most ethical business people I know, and he's also highly skilled at creating music himself, although you wouldn't know it to look at him. He doesn't look like a musician. Um, under the guidance of Jeff and his business partner, David Hilker, the company's catalogs of music and videos are represented in 38 countries internationally and can be heard daily in hit TV shows, major and indie films, ad campaigns, and new media initiatives around the globe. Um, with the primary intent of increasing the value of copyright, yay, Fervor Records is perpetuating the legacies of artists and songwriters of yesteryear and launching a select roster of current artists as well. Jeff has signed countless taxi members over the last 15 years, and I've never heard anything but compliments about him personally and his company. Um, let's see where, oh, five years ago at the Road Rally, Jeff told me that uh, they'd paid out about 100K in um, upfront, uh, you know, like buyouts to taxi members the previous year. We're up to about 350K, he tells me now, give or take. It's a rough guesstimate. Um, can't even begin to imagine how much income our members have made in, ag in aggregate over the last 15 years because of the enduring relationship our two companies have, in fact, enjoyed. So uh, to let you know, oh, I wrote this, I already told you. To let you know what a stand-up guy he is. He actually flew out here to be on the show. Um, that's a big deal to me anyway. Uh, he actually flew out here one time, remember that, the court case? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we had a member that just went, well, I'm, he, he went nuts, and, and I needed Jeff to fly out here, and he actually went to small claims court with me. Uh, like many boutique companies with limited time, Jeff's company doesn't have the time to listen to a bunch of unsolicited material. They need to spend their time pitching. Um, so please don't call or email them. Um, I know that, you know, like a couple thousand people at least will see this show after the fact, but he seems like an accessible guy. Actually, there's a wall around him. <laughs> There is a wall. It's hard to get through to me. Uh, anyway, uh, so among many other things, Jeff licenses vintage music when somebody is doing a film or a TV show and they need to put viewers in a certain time, you know, like an era. Um, they use vintage period music to make you feel like you're actually there. And it's surprising how many people we found and handed off to Jeff that have great music that they've recorded on a TAC 4-track or even like an 8-track cassette machine that somehow these guys are magically able to resurrect, make it sound good enough that they can put it on the air um, while others see it as a pile of garbage. This guy sees it as gold and has done really well for a lot of our members. And right now it says, interview starts here. <laughs> oh, but not before. <laughs> I hold up the signs because otherwise Bria will kick me under the table. There you go. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe right down there in the corner. 
and share it, even if your friends are imaginary. Just go ahead and share it anyway. Um, so with all that said, uh, tell our viewers why actual vintage music is more desirable than music, than music that's been recorded recently where people try to fake it and make it sound old. Is it a psychological thing? Is there a certain patina that it's got? What up? Um, it, it's a variety of things. So first of all, think about it if, if you were the uh, you were hired to direct an episode of NCIS, as an example, okay? So this is your big shot. I wouldn't shot. be sitting here with a guy like you. Right, right yeah, no kidding. Um, and uh, so this is your big shot, Yeah. okay? So this is your baby. So you would rather have the most authentic 48 minutes of television that you can possibly create and not cut any corners if you had that choice. So while there is a market for recorded music um, that sounds like it came from an era, the preference of a director or a producer or a music supervisor who is influencing a, a director or a producer is to get the real deal. A lot of times they're temping with the real deal and they fall in love with a James Brown track but they can't afford a James Brown track, or maybe they can afford a James Brown track, but the estate doesn't sign off on it, or uh, maybe the publisher says yes, and for whatever reason, the record label doesn't get back on a quote request. Well, if it, if it turns out that they can't use it, they're gonna come to us and say, okay, well, we need soul music from the 1960s, or maybe they need rockabilly from the 1950s, or maybe they need crooner or big band because they can't afford a frank sinatra track or the union reuse fees right. are way too high right that one's so it's got to be a big issue a lot of times yeah so think about it. i mean you know count basie orchestra not only are you licensing the master recording and the publishing but then somebody's going to be on the hook for these reuse fees and if there's 20 guys that yeah. performed on a on a particular composition or on a particular master uh, well you're gonna the union's gonna be calling up production and saying hey I you got to pay for reuse fees on all this stuff that would be a, a huge too yeah uh, on a band that size so our value proposition is that we can license music at a reasonable price to make uh, a show as strong as possible by keeping it in whatever moment or era that they're trying to reinforce in a setting. So many of our members have asked us over the years when they see the listings we put out for you guys, and, and now there are other people that are trying to copy you, but, but in a small way. They, they couldn't possibly catch up at this point, which I'm sure has to be comforting to you. And you deserve that because you worked so, you had a brilliant idea, worked really hard and, Thank you. and made it work. You Thank know? you. And, this guy is, he's harder working than James Brown is. Because <laughs> he's, he's one of my friends in the industry. I, I could literally call him at 11 o'clock at night and he would have finished his regular day of work and will be in the studio making music. Yeah, I mean, we, all of us, I mean, there's a team, it takes a team to realize the dream. And um, certainly I, I'm appreciative, but there is such a large group of people um, just to kind of make us look good and to fulfill the needs in the marketplace. And it's everything from A&R to digital restoration to metadata um, to legal. I mean, it's, it's, a, um, it's a huge undertaking. And, I, and both Dave Hilker, my, my business partner, and I are extremely proud of what we've, we've, what we've built and, and, and so the ability to perpetuate these legacies and get money in, in, in artists' pockets and writers' pockets. And so. do it ethically. I and mean, do it ethically, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of sleazy people in, in all industries. Music industry seems to have cornered the market some days, but yeah. I've never had anything but compliments about you guys. But what was my question? I, I was 
asking you something about, oh, um, people wonder, you know, why can't you just knock off something that sounds old? So about four or five years ago, Jeff and I did a 90 minute panel at the Road Rally where we played really good sounding music that was made to sound retro. Frankly, stuff that would have gotten by me as being retro. And I've got, you know, reasonably good ears, but you can't get it by Jeff. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, we've listened to enough, uh, both myself and Dave, that, you know, you kind of start getting familiar with, well, you know, what drum sounds or drum mic micing techniques were used, or um, was that synthesizer really being used in 1973? Seems off, you know, so yeah. you start kind of like picking up. I mean, we just listen to music religiously. It's either coming from clients or it's coming, from, you know, and they're saying, hey, we need to replace XYZ or it's coming right. from Taxi and we're reviewing and we're cross-referencing with hits from back in the day. And so you kind of just build up this database in your mind and um, it makes it easier to figure out uh, what's going to pass the sniff test and, and what doesn't. So. And, and people would think, well, gee, this stuff is going to sound bad. You know, it's going to have a ton of tape hiss on it. Um, there's going to be distortion on it, but uh, you and I once had the patina discussion, um, and you said, hey, that's all part of what makes it... It's part of the magic. Yeah. Um, so sometimes if we do a transfer from vinyl, we can EQ out some of that uh, noise from, you know, from the needle, and uh, other times we can't get all of it, because if we start EQing it out, it dips into the vocal. Right. And uh, we just tell our clients, look, this is the real deal. So if you want the real deal, there might be some artifacts in there, and maybe that makes it more magical. Magical, you know, and if not, then move on to the next one. And I'm here's another piece. Surprised you know? I've never made this connection before. But yesterday I had brunch with a gentleman that was my assistant engineer 35 years ago. And he lives out here, has forever. And he's like the, the head guy of sound restoration for Warner Brothers. Oh, very cool. And, and I should introduce you guys. Yeah. You know, if nothing else, you both have a deep appreciation for that. But there may be a time where you have to reach out to him and say, what would you do? What would you do here? Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, okay, so when you get old music, let, let's take the James Brown example. Now, obviously, half the magic or more uh, of James Brown is the fact that it's James Brown. It, it, it's the song, it's his unbelievable performance, and, and the rest of it, of course, is, is the, the sound, the production, the time period, the vibe, all that, you know, the fairy dust part. Um, so now, if you get a song from me, and I'm... 60 or let's say 70 years old and I've got something that sounds like James Brown era and it sounds authentic because it was recorded back in let's say 1957 um, but the song is B plus mm -hmm. as opposed to James Brown A plus are the people that you deal with in the industry they're satisfied with something that's B plus or A minus where the song isn't a known hit or may not be as good is the real deal, but the vibe and authenticity factor is so high that it makes up for it. Is that how that works? I think it depends. I mean, we're really just looking for great songs and songs that are representative of an era. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the rules that we look at for new, new music are the same that we look for period music. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. Does the tonal center of the chorus lift? Is something, these little things that as a fan we think are magical are really just tools in the toolbox of a good writer. So we'll certainly turn down period music if it's not a good song, right? Mm -hmm. um, if the vocals are really pitchy, we're probably not gonna sign it. Um, you know, especially like doo-wop, I mean, Everybody better be saying in tune, on time, in meter, 
in a doo-wop group, you know? Um, there's, there's leniency for maybe psychedelic rock, you know, from the right. late 60s, right? And maybe things are a little loosey-goosey, and that's okay. Or the Rolling Stones made a career out of being loosey-goosey, right? I mean, that, so that's okay. So it's really kind of song-specific and era-specific. Um, would we take a B-plus? Probably, or we'd at least have a heated debate about it. Um, right. Dave and I sit across the desk from each other. All music submissions that we get from Taxi go to Jacob Nathan, who is our creative director of A&R, who is uh, a stand-up guy and um, a great communicator and somebody that can kind of do a first pass and, and separate some, right. some wheat from the, the chaff. And then Dave and I will sit down and we will listen to every single piece of music that Jacob uh, sends our way. And, um, and a lot of it is from Taxi. And we will debate the merits and um, the demerits of each song. Mm -hmm. So, um, and we can, we'll usually know within about 15 seconds. And that, that is the cold, hard reality of this business. If you haven't won us over in 15 seconds, you probably lost your chance. Um, that's the entire industry. That's the industry. Uh, and I understand that that hurts people's uh, artistic sensitivities. And it's a very emotional thing because um, gee, I put my heart and soul into this and you've determined my fate in 15 seconds, but you do know. The thing is, is that if you've got to wait to hook me at the bridge, it's too late, right? Right. I mean, two minutes in, it's too late. Maybe yeah. you shouldn't even have a bridge, you know? Um, or maybe you're not writing your bridge properly. Um, so uh, you really have to hook us early. And, and if we're judging in 15 or 20 seconds, you know, and, and then maybe deciding to listen a little bit longer if we like it, well, our clients, music supervisors, are probably, we have to assume a music supervisor is spending even less time than we are, yeah. right? Because, I mean, the reality of a music supervisor's job, and those are kind of our primary interfaces in terms of film and TV and, and advertising and trailers, is that they are, they are getting sent more music than there are hours in a day, literally, Absolutely. literally. So they are literally getting more than 24 hours of music to listen to a day. So you better, you better send the right stuff and you better be right about it. Because if not, you're not gonna get listened to. Because it's just too overwhelming. Um, one of the things that we've been asked since the, I started this company 26 years ago is if it's close. Because the screeners will write, you know, this is a really good effort. It's close, but it just wasn't on it. Well, why didn't you guys send it off to Jeff or to the supervisor or whomever? Why don't you let them decide? Because you could have been wrong. Uh, what's wrong with that? So I, what, I'm glad that you brought this up because we were kind of talking about this in the, in the hallway beforehand. There are some taxi members that I have a good relationship with that I've known for years and years. And every now and then um, they'll say, hey, you know, XYZ, this XYZ song was not forwarded by taxi for a listing. Can I just get your ears on it? And because these are people I've known a long time, I'm more than happy to, in my brief spare moments uh, of time, you know, take a listen. And 99% of the time, the, I will say back to them, hey, you know, this didn't make the grade. I can hear it. It's like these vocals are pitchy. It's like, or the vocals aren't selling it. The vocals could be in tune, but if the performance isn't compelling, who cares? Yeah. So, um, and I'm just kind of blatantly honest. So I've actually found that the taxi screeners are fair and accurate. 
and it's hard because we're dealing with music, which is emotional. It's a it's a human thing, right? We're not it's not we're not creating widgets like pencils or, you know, sticky notes or, or whatever. So it's it's hard to hear um, that something didn't make the grade. You know, I mean, I, I get that. Um, and and after you break their hearts, after we break their hearts, then you confirm that we broke their hearts appropriately. They all call us up and say, "Wow, you guys were right." <laughs> well, I, you know, I've That's just never found, happened not once. <laughs> I just find honestly that if you're truthful about it, one, I can sleep better at night if I'm truthful about it. Because if I mislead somebody and they keep making the same mistakes over and over, and they're spending money in a recording studio, oh. and they're um, just kind of like going down this financial rabbit hole, I don't, I don't like, I just don't feel good about that, you know, yeah. on the personal level, too. But two, you won't get better unless you actually get the honest critical feedback um, yeah. and nobody's perfect and you know maybe the thing to do is maybe you're a great writer and you can't sing so maybe you should be co-writing with somebody that is a good singer or maybe you should be hiring a better vocalist or somebody that can actually emote in the way that would um, do justice to the song because at the end of the day you have to serve the music that's part of the beauty of the road rally our, our annual convention for those of you who've never been is that members who are strong in one thing meet members who are weak in another they tend to find their equilibrium they pair up they collaborate and make something that's better than either of them could have done on their own yeah and i love when i see that happen let's talk about probably my favorite success story in the history of this company <laughs> uh, you know where i'm going it's got it's got to be pete sivo absolutely <laughs> yeah. i mean this, this is such a great story and I'll be lucky if I don't start crying as we're talking about this because it's this is what gets me out of bed and I know that you feel the same way about him it's just we're both so fortunate to have met this man so why don't you go ahead and tell the story so we, we had run a listing years ago with taxi we were looking for uh, 1950s kind of big band crooner jazz we get um, a bunch of submissions from a guy named Peter Sivo and uh, I call him, nothing, fine. Three weeks later, I call him, fine, nothing. I, I email him, nothing. And, um, and this goes on like, like maybe every two or three weeks for years, right? right. I and I mean, three literally. Years of memory serves, it was three yeah. years. And then you and I are having an offhand you know, conversation, <laughs> or whatever. And turns out that Pete is in his 90s and doesn't hear his answering machine well. And, uh, and so it was just kind of like coming out garbled, but his son, who was in his 70s at the time, Pete Sivo <laughs> Jr., heard the message and finally got us in touch with his dad. Yep. Um, we signed a handful of uh, songs from Pete. Really, we, we kind of um, ended up signing most of his back catalog um, from the 50s through the 70s. And the guy was just prolific. And, and 40s, I should say. Actually, I think the earliest we have from his, him is 1946. He got out of World War II, and I think by 46 he was writing and recording. And he, he uh, told me that one of those things, or some of them were actually recorded in one of those booths that you go to at like a, you know, a county fair or something uh, on a boardwalk somewhere where you walk in and with your guitar and you sing in a booth, and he actually did some of it there. And uh, he's phenomenal. <laughs> and he was a great writer, and he was so emotive and um, what he was doing was so representative of that era and and he captured that moment so beautifully and he is one of our most licensed artists uh, he was he's been on girls on HBO um, numerous cable TV shows numerous network shows I mean I would say 
you know, there's a couple taxi members that um, have done phenomenally well through us. And uh, one would be Bob Kelly, who's a Rockabilly right. Hall of Famer, um, who uh, lives outside of Las Vegas. And he actually wrote hits for Gene Vincent. And wow. his collaborator, uh, Jay Ramsey, actually has a gold record with Elvis Presley, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, Bob Kelly would certainly be one of those um, guys. And Pete Sivo, of course, would as well. And, and finally, we got in touch and signed everything. And, and um, he's still alive. He's got to be. Did you tell me recently you think he's 97? Yeah, I think he's about 97. Is and, that mind-blowing? Uh, a 97-year-old. I actually called Pete one day because I interviewed him for the taxi newsletter. And I said, Pete, I'm just so unbelievably proud of you, and it's got to be great, you know, in your retirement years, having this extra income. And he actually used a little profanity, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I don't give a blankety-blank about the money, young man. It's all about the fact that for years, all I ever wanted was for people to hear this music. Yeah. And now, because of what you and Jeff have done for me, millions of people have heard my music. He started crying. I was crying. But, it's you awesome. Know. Go to iTunes and, and look for Pete Sivo. We have a, a compilation of his out from the 1940s through the 1960s and S-I-V-O yeah S-I-V-O and the music is uh, is brilliant it really is he's such a good guy he's such a pure musician he literally does it for the love of wanting other people to just appreciate his art yeah you know yeah just I mean, I lost track. It's sixteen placements. It's got to be. Oh, it's way more than yeah. that. It's way more than that. Yeah, it's... <laughs> he's living the life at ninety-seven that anybody else would be jealous of. You know, one of the, you know, when we when we started going in this direction with vintage music, you know, we knew that there was kind of a a need for it in the marketplace just from talking to clients and and kind of putting feelers out, and um, the thing that my business partner and I didn't anticipate was kind of like this amazing feel-good thing that happens when you tell like a 80 or 90 year old person that music they wrote in their 20s is going to be on TV and and it and it it's a time warp and it really takes them back to that that time and they start telling stories and um so like is it okay to indulge maybe on a yeah, quick little story here absolutely so uh Bob Kelly who hopefully is watching um Bob grew up in East Texas um during segregation and um, the radio stations didn't play back then what were called race records, right? right? So, so Bob and his friends as teenagers would drive to an abandoned airfield and they would put their cars in a circle where the headlights were all facing in. And at nighttime at East Texas, the ionosphere changes and you can pick up radio stations that are much, much further away. Right. And um, they would play um, R&B songs on the radio and dance in the middle of the airfield, wow. in the middle of all those uh, you know, car lights, yeah. you know, pointed towards each other, you know? And so like you start hearing wow. these stories and it's like, and the, and and Bob's music is brilliant. I mean, he's he he was. I mean, he he has a hit with Gene Vincent called "Get It." You know, G I T I T, and uh, and you realize like for these people that kind of lived through the early stages of rock and roll or were there in when R and B was just coming up and how magical these times were. Yeah. Um, and so we like to retell these stories. We tell them every day. We tell them to our clients. We'll tell them to anybody who will listen, honestly. My kids are <laughs> probably familiar. sick. Yeah. And we just tell these stories over and over and over. And it's a way that we can perpetuate their legacy and also teach people about, well, how did this music come together? How did this happen? Or why did this happen? Um, and in East Texas, it happened... Um, in the most romantic way for a teenager that it ever could. You just you know? gave me a great idea. 
at last year's road rally what was the name of the movie we screened um Bang the Burt Burns Burn story about a guy that had like 21 hits and nobody knew who he was. Uh, like Hang On Sloopy and, and things uh-huh. that were that big. And they made a documentary that was really good. We um, screened it last year at the Road Rally. Why don't you and I try and get some of these gentlemen to come out to the Road Rally and do a end of the day, like 6.30 in the Grand Ballroom where they tell their story. Yeah, storytelling, yeah. yeah. I think that would be awesome. I, I, I think, think they would, it would love be, it. People would eat it up and it would be, not cathartic for them, but make them feel so good to have a room full of other musicians going, oh, that's Absolutely. Awesome. I love it. All right, it's that's a great our idea. plan for this year. Um, let's see. Uh, Okay, so give me some examples um, of how, and we're not going to spend the whole show on vintage music, just so you know, uh, but some examples of how vintage music is used. Obviously, they're, they're featured placements and background and background source, but is it sometimes just merely textural? Other times, is it about the lyric because it's apropos? And it's not always in movies that have scenes that take place in the 40s or 50s. No, I mean, we had a song featured in Logan Lucky, which yeah. was a Steven mm-hmm. Soderbergh film. Great and movie, it's featured during a car chase, um, but it happens to be a garage rock tune from the 1960s. So why it just worked in the scene. And um, luckily, a music supervisor named Susan Kent pitched it to Steven Soderbergh, and he liked it, and we made a deal, and that was that. Um, there are a lot of scenes where it is reinforcing the setting, and it is coming out of a jukebox, or it's in a diner, and... Um, there are times when someone, so for example, we had a song in NCIS uh, maybe like a month ago. The guy's driving a pickup truck. Well, what kind of music are they going to listen to in a pickup truck? Country. Country. Right. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of that scene reinforcement. Um, but the, and, and it can be modern day or it can be, um, it could be a flashback type thing. It just kind of depends. Sometimes it works just because it's haunting. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a... Um, kind of like a, 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 a slow 1950s female pop ballad and um, put a little extra, you know, the post-production will put a little extra reverb on it and all of a sudden it works really well in a trailer for a horror film, right? right? You know, so uh, there's a lot of applications for, for how it works. Uh, do things like chord changes, melodies, I mean, they do change over time, like uh, styles of shoes or clothing change. So are those uh, some of the magical aspects of older music um, that it's not just that it was done with an older microphone or an older tape machine, but... It's the arrangements and it's, um, look, it's, it's, chilling when you hear um, doo-wop and and hear all those the confluence of those voices all at once in harmony singing about love I mean it just works um, it, it's that's just a magical thing and it feels different than um, a modern day love song and that doesn't mean that a modern day love song is bad because um, right. it's not bad it's, it's just, just different, different right and it and evokes a certain feeling and also you know, some shows are targeted towards an older audience and an older demographic. And this could be network or it could be on Netflix, right? So, yeah. I, And so they're going to use music that attracts or reinforces a certain demographic, right? So, um, so it works in that way too. And new music works that way as well, right? I mean, you're gonna spend money on a Taylor Swift song if you're trying to attract a certain type of an audience or retain a certain type of audience. And you're gonna use a Ray Charles song um, for a very different reason, right? So, I mean, music goes, is part of that calculus of who are we trying to attract? Do they 
pay more for a vintage piece of music. Let's say it's a broadcast net uh, placement in an episodic drama uh, and a typical kind of library song with vocals or lyrics, um, I'm guessing would be in the two to $5,000 range for something like that, depending. So I'll tell uh, you, do they pay more for vintage because it's specialized and harder to find? So I'll tell you that um, like we're pretty careful about keeping a button on our pricing because there are competitors out there that right. are trying to emulate what we do. But what we've always tried to be as as fair as possible because our goal is to get songs and film and TV because we're trying to build back-end royalties for those songwriters. And the best way to do that is to be fair and reasonable and not jack up prices so high that you start missing opportunities. Right. Um, so and it's worked it's worked really well. I mean, we've generated millions of dollars for our songwriters over the years, including numerous taxi writers. That's gotta feel good. I know it makes me feel good just to be part of that chain. And I've gotta say, these guys send us an email for virtually every one of those placements letting us know. And for those um other libraries who are watching that don't send us emails, this is I'm laying it down right now, man. Send emails because we love it. Um, and actually, I owe you an email. I owe you guys an email. I just got the confirm today for Glow, which is a show on Netflix. Robert Simpson, who's yeah. a taxi member. I hung out with him at the road rally. We met for about a half an hour. We've signed a bunch of his songs from the 70s and 80s. One of his songs has a three-minute usage in Glow. Coming out June 29th on Netflix. <laughs> so uh, I'll send an email late tonight or something. All so, right. Yeah. Uh, well, we always appreciate those. Um, how hard is it for you guys to clear this stuff? Because uh, It's so hard. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you think, oh, libraries get half the money, man, man, man. Uh, in their world, probably 60 to 70 or 80 percent of the people that you need like work for hires or copyright issues they're dead yeah so i mean this is something we talk a lot about with writers and actually before they sign a contract we really try to scare the pants off them because <laughs> it's what you're signing is extremely important and just like how when you uh, buy a house, you need a clear title, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's the same thing. When you acquire music, you need to make sure there's a clean title. So you need to make sure that everybody is accounted for on the publishing side. Where did any Was there fractional ownership of the master? A lot of people don't understand that legally, through copyright law, the only way that you can assign publishing is through a signature. So an email does not do it. I can't say I assign X percentage of this publishing to you, Michael Laskow signed, Jeff Roenlich. It has to be in writing. Okay. So, and sometimes um, writers get overly excited and exuberant um, when you call them and say, hey, I'm interested in your music. Because they think, oh my God, this is, it's finally <laughs> happening, right? This is my moment. They feel validated. And, uh, and we I have, know that writer very well. <laughs> so, and we have to say, okay, well, slow down. Wow, your phones are like blowing up. Did you see that? Yeah, it's, it's everybody's loving this. We're huge. We're going to be hit. Um, so it's our job to say, okay, let's slow down a minute. Did you pay for this recording? Tell me the story. 
I want to hear everything. Was there some manager that gave you money for this? Did you have something in writing? I mean, I, we got we need to go through the whole soup and nuts. Right. Did did a label pay for the demo? So technically, they would own exactly. it. Exactly. Right. Um, or we've had instances where um, people conveniently forgot. Um, you know, uh, what happened and then ended up returning money to us later uh, because wow. they realized, okay, well, I was technically under contract with the United Artists at that time and I had a demo deal and these were done as part of that demo deal and I really can't claim ownership. And, you know, the, the civil penalty for copyright infringement is $150,000. Per infringement. Per infringement. Yeah. So you better be right and uh, about owning what you say you own. And so we really take our our writers through a process to make sure that that's, that they're being truthful. I've heard you guys send guys with like baseball bats and ski masks over <laughs> their house. I'm kidding, of course. I am kidding. Uh, so our members get frustrated. Uh, oh no, I'm gonna talk about another thing that frustrates our members. Get really frustrated when we don't forward a piece of music because we hold the bar high for the companies we work with. And then the members get the same piece of music signed by what I would call a lower tier library, because there are libraries and there are libraries and there are libraries. Um, should we lower the bar? I don't know. I mean, for us, you know, we want to take the highest standard um, and be above the highest standard. Why? Because we're competing with Sony Records. We're competing with EMI. I mean, it has to be great on yeah. a variety of levels, you know, sonically, performance-wise, the craft of the actual and, composition. And now you're talking about all music, not just vintage. Yeah, I'm not just like, I'm talking, I, I don't care if we're talking about record label stuff, if we're talking about production music. Um, I mean, we ha average over 10,000 usages a year on Fox Sports, okay? So there's a reason for that because our music is awesome. <laughs> We're not sending bad material. We're not sending B-list material. Yeah. If you want to have success, you have to raise the bar as high as you possibly can. Um, and it is, I know it hurts or it's hurtful when, uh, when you're not under that bar and it's painful when you're trying as hard as you can to get above that bar. Um, I get it. I've been there myself um, because I write as well. Um, that is the reality of this business. And, and if you really want to have a career in this business and it's not amateur hour and this is not a hobby, but this is what you're going to do for a living, it's got to be great. People get very frustrated because there are lower tier libraries that they're more interested in quantity. I think it's kind of a, you know, throw it at the wall and it'll stick for somebody sooner or later, which is probably true. But there is at least one, if not a couple of websites where people can go and they rate uh, different music libraries. And I've seen this literally 100, 200, 300 times where the libraries that I know that are the lower bar libraries actually have the higher ratings because people like them because they accept their music. Right. And the libraries that hold to a higher standard have only three out of five stars because they've turned people away. So if I were searching for a great library, I would go to that site and look for the libraries that have three stars instead of five. That's hilarious. Invariably, the five-star libraries are, are the easy ones. You know, I don't envy being on the other side of this laptop. Yeah. It is hard, right? I mean, you're if you don't have contacts in the industry, you're trying to get better. Um, you have a limited amount of time or maybe a limited amount of resources. Um, it takes a lot to get over that hump. It really does. Um, and 
you might have success with one piece and your next five might get rejected, right? right? And um, it's not it's not like there's not some secret code, you know, uh, where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I know exactly what to do every single time. That's you know? when you pull and, out the secret decoder ring yeah. and it just fixes everything. But I'll say this about taxi members, you know, it it takes courage to like commit to something, right? And if you if you've joined Taxi, if you're paying for these submissions, if you're open to the feedback, you're saying that you want to improve. You're saying you yeah. want to be better. And that's that's better than 95% of the people out there that just can't handle that process, you know? Um, Those of you who are, are regulars, uh, you, Rob Shirelli, Michael Lloyd, the regulars at the Road Rally invariably comment that the music they hear every year, it seems to be getting better and better and better. It's because the most committed members are the ones that come to the Road Rally and listen to what the screeners say, listen to what the industry pros say at the Road Rally, and they do get better. Yeah, and they do. The stuff from the average people on the street, the non-taxi members on the street versus what taxi members in aggregate are doing, you guys went just that simple. Um, okay, if you've got a killer piece, a uh, piece of killer instrumental music, but one or two of the samples or instrument sounds are a little dated or something about just not working, um, is that enough to cause a music supervisor to take a pass and go on to the next one? So you are, I, let's just c confirm, right now you're talking about production music um, to a music supervisor? Yeah, let's talk about production music, okay. instrumental. Um, I guess, it, yeah, let's not confuse it and make it lyrical. Let's just talk instrumental. Our members get upset with us when we return something to them, even though it's a great piece of music and the screener says, great piece of music and it was on target for, for what they were looking for. However, the synthesizer sound is just so off that it took me out of the moment and... I think that's totally valid. I mean, okay. look, if you're... Let's say you're writing a tension cue for Catfish on MTV, okay? Well, not anymore. Not anymore, right. <laughs> right bad example, bad example. But um, for another MT, fine MTV show, um, you know, you might get 15 seconds of, of usage in a given scene or a given moment. and. It has to be perfect. I mean, they've got a million choices, right? I mean, yeah. there are a million libraries. So why would they choose the one with the bad synth sound when they can just pick up the phone and call somebody else and and get exactly what they want, right? Yeah. I mean, so it just doesn't make sense logically, right? Take the emotion out of it, right? Just why would why would they settle for the B when they could get an A plus from somewhere else? And guess what? There's a ton of production music out there. A ton. So you better be awesome. I mean, you just that's just how it has to work. It's just the reality. There's a, a woman that we had at the Road Rally last year, a young lady named Laurel Ostrander, who is an extremely good video editor, and I had her show how she selects music and slugs it into a show. Yeah, you were uh, telling me about her, yeah. She was just such an awesome teacher. Uh, I'm bringing her back. I'm opening the Road Rally with her this year because once you see that, you go, oh, now I get it. And it's not about being the most brilliant composer unless you qualify brilliant as the person who makes the easiest music to use in the show. Because that's what they want is e it works. Not, wow, more brilliant than Hans Zimmer. Yeah, I don't think they're looking for Mozart a, a lot of the time. <laughs> what they're looking for is does the music connote the emotion yeah. that we're going after, right? And because the, the music is going to instruct the viewer 
how to feel, right? right? It's going to say, you should feel sad. You should feel bittersweet. You should feel scared. It amplifies it. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the scene already is scary, but you can make it more scary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how about uh, vocals and song pitches? The song is great, but the vocal isn't quite right. It's like the track is good. The song is well written. Melodically, it's there. Lyrically, it's there. Uh, and it may not be a bad vocal. I, I've heard vocals that are technically correct. Great singer. But it's just like a little too clean or a little too yeah, perfect that, to make it. I mean, when that happens, we're probably walking away. Mm -hmm. um, because, look, we have a reputation to uphold with our clients, right? When a music supervisor reaches out and I've got five songs, you know, to that I've got a max of five that I can send to that music supervisor for a specific scene. They have to be amazing. So if the vocal's not cutting it, if it's not doing it, it's not going to get used anyway. So why would I sign it? Because I don't want to be the bridesmaid. I want to be the bride, right? <laughs> I want to. I want the opportunity to get that placement. So all these years, I thought I knew you well. But, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but honestly, it's like you know. So it really the vocal has to be great. If you're if you're if you have a mediocre vocal on a great song, it, it's probably not going to get used. And there are all these variations on that theme. You could have a vocal that sounds like somebody stayed up late drinking and smoking too much last night, but their vibe matches the song. Totally. You know, it's it's gritty, it's greasy, it's down and out. Uh, and conversely, you could have a vocalist. We've had this complaint from members where, I went out and hired a session vocalist to sing it. Well, she was a great singer, but it was just too clean and too technically. It lacked the emotion. The performance was there, and on a technical level, it was great, but it, it didn't make me feel anything. Well, or maybe they're riffing too much and they're not establishing melody. And so right. they're trying to improvise without establishing what you're, you should be locked onto first. Um, I mean, there's so many things can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it really, you know. And, and that's a great point because our members get really upset with the screeners when they send something, when they return something to a member and they will make a comment like, um, too many vocal gymnastics. Mm -hmm. um, and but she's a great singer. Yes, she is, and we're just throwing that out there because you should know this. It's just one more part of the education. But they take such offense at it rather than going, "Oh, I should remember that next time." Well, it's emotional because it's your baby, and you yeah. have to be willing to eat your babies in this industry. I mean, it's like you you're you you have to find a way to become emotionally unattached to your music and look at it with a critical eye or listen to it with a critical ear. You know, and if you're only playing it for your friends, your friends will tell you what they want, what they think you want to hear. And also, your friends are not experts right. in the business. They don't know of music. where the standard is, right? Exactly. And, so. and even if they knew the difference, which they could between you know good or bad, good and great, they may know that but they don't know how it works in a scene or it doesn't because they haven't learned that craft. Well, and just beyond film and TV, I mean, even, you know, at our company, we get multiple sets of ears on music. I, you know, something I might really like, Dave, my business partner might be like, yeah, but this is driving me nuts. And I'll say, you know what, now it's driving me nuts. And <laughs> that's going to drive a music supervisor nuts. Or, you know, it's, I mean, really any piece of music we sign, it's getting through three sets of years. Jacob is doing an initial screening and then Dave and I are doing a screening. And then hopefully we can reach a deal um, with the writer and the artist and everything else, right? So. By the way, I want to compliment you on your choice of Jacob. Uh, I've had such a long and 
productive and warm and friendly relationship with you that when you said, you know, we've got this new guy joining the team, I hung up the phone and kind of quietly went, wah, 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 <laughs> fearing that I wouldn't have as much, you know, interaction still with still your buddy. You. It's I okay. <laughs> You're here. Yeah, you showed up. Uh, but uh, Jacob is such a great extension of you guys. We absolutely adore him. He, he's such a, a mensch. And uh, I actually got one of the best road rally shots, uh, photography shots, of him, I sent it to him right after the road rally last year and said, send this one to your mom. Oh, awesome. Because he looked like a male model. It was just the perfect shot. Send it to your mom. And he wrote back and said, I did. I'm having <laughs> breakfast with him at a secure, undisclosed location tomorrow. Um, and I'm looking forward to spending a little time with him. Yeah, so. but he's a great guy. Seriously, you could not have picked Thank a you. better guy for your company. Thanks. Um, because he just, you know, it's not just doing the work. It's melding in the personalities and yeah. being face forward to the industry, all that stuff. And he, he he's good. He checks all the boxes. Um, okay, so now we're talking about more of the businessy stuff. Just if you're paying attention, I hope you are. Uh, do you ever take a pass on signing or working with somebody that gives you early signals that they're going to be a lot of work for you in the form of phone calls, emails, questions about, come on, you guys have had this sign for six months and nothing's happened yet. Um, I, some people fear there's an industry blacklist. I don't know if there's actually a blacklist, but do you get that where I you mean, go, this is going to be trouble? We certainly don't have like a running list of, oh, <laughs> like, you know, it's another one from this person. Or, um, but I would say that um, we're looking for productive business relationships. And this is, this is true of any industry, right? I mean, you want to work with people that are um, agreeable or honest or um, not hounding you. Um, I would say we're extremely upfront when we sign music that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. So don't expect something to happen in the, in the first six months. Um, you know, for Robert Simpson, who we were talking about before, who has a cut and glow, I think we've had some of his stuff for about a year. I'd say on average, it takes about a year. Um, it takes time for our clients to hear the music multiple times. And then maybe by the fifth or sixth pitch, they're like, hey, I really like that song, right? Because they've right. heard it a few times, right? So, But going back to your question, um, we try to manage expectations so that we don't run into those situations. And do they actually hear what you're saying? Um, I think they do because by that time, they're so excited that we've gotten this far in the conversation that I think that they're listening. Um, so, uh, but yeah, have we been scared off by people that are overly aggressive? Of course, yeah. We've got one heading your way right now <laughs> that would fit that description. I've All been right. informed by my staff today, and they didn't even know that, they didn't think of it in terms of like, oh, Jeff's coming to the office today, but um, several staff members independently were telling me there's somebody that is just like blowing up the phones here, talking to staff members, uh, even to the point where he's commenting about what a pain in the ass he's oh, been. And, you know what's funny? somebody said, you know, we forwarded him okay. to Jeff. <laughs> this leads me into a great story, okay? Because okay. um, if we want to talk about kind of the business side of how this works, yeah. okay? Um, when we started, Dave and I together, um, we had credits because Dave had written for other catalogs, he had written for Fox Family, and so we could kind of um, parlay those credits into a conversation, mm -hmm. but we didn't have contacts. And so I, I, an example of how to that walk that fine line in the industry, I called 
the assistant to Celeste Ray, who was the head of music at Paramount. This is before CBS and, and Paramount had merged, right. right? And she was fairly legendary, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and her, her husband was uh, Elvis's hair cutter, believe it wow. or not. So, but anyways, I called her assistant every three weeks for nine months until finally Celeste Ray got on the phone and said, don't ever call <laughs> no, 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 she said, you have been respectful. You're treating my wow. assistant really nicely. And she's saying good things about you. Um, she was working on Charmed at the moment, yeah. which I, ironically is being reboot this year. So, but uh, she's like, I need music for Charmed. I need it by tomorrow morning. And I'm calling you because you're playing the game the right way. And uh, we stayed up the entire night working on a piece of music for this specific scene. We sent it to her. She called up the next day and she said, I hate this. <laughs> and uh, it was heartbreaking, right? I mean, it was just like, oh, you know, just keep turning the knife. And um, but then she called back like two weeks later and she said, you did everything I asked you to do. You didn't blow up at me on the phone. You weren't hounding <laughs> me for a response. Um, we have another music need here. I'm going to license something from your catalog. It ended up getting us an in good faith deal with Paramount, which means that we were all of a sudden on a list, which meant that music supervisors could license our music because we were kind of pre-approved pre right. with Paramount, right? So that's kind of an example of that fine line. And well, how you, you have to find a way not to be a pain in the butt with people and add value. You have to know if you're going to be in the elevator with somebody at the road rally, maybe you should think about in advance, like, hey, if I happen to be in the elevator with so-and-so, mm -hmm. what should I say? Um, I got lucky enough to, a couple weeks ago, um, Taylor Swift was doing a dress rehearsal of her um, her tour in Phoenix, which is where, where we're based. And so I got to go, and actually it was really incredible because it was, it was primarily a charity event and there was about 2,000 kids there. She took pictures with every single kid that was right. at that show it was really powerful and then she broke up with all of them yeah right. <laughs> and um and so you know i met her and um i gave her a hug and we talked for you know 15 or 20 seconds and and even in my mind i was thinking what am i going to say to taylor swift that she hasn't heard before um what what, what am i going to do to differentiate myself and i had no grand delusions of um you know having some kind of business relationship with with taylor swift afterwards but the point being you should be prepared, especially if you're at the road rally, and this might be your only chance to actually engage or interact with a music supervisor or a music publisher or a record company. You should be prepared. What's your elevator pitch? What are you going to say that's going to differentiate yourself from everybody else at the road rally or everybody else at the concert or whatever it is? And it should not be. Here's my stuff, but I'm working on newer, better stuff. For sure. <laughs> that, yeah. that is like, it's a sure sign of amateur hour and it's a deal killer. right? Yeah, there. it's and, a deal killer. It's tough. Um, sometimes I'll be uh, at the road rally and because I try to go every year if I can. And every now and then it interferes with my wife's birthday. And um, but, you know, it's like I try to spend a lot of time in the lobby. And then when I've kind of had enough, I'll go back up to my room and then go back down. And, you know, when you're coming down to the lobby and people are putting CDs in your hand, they're not thinking it through logically. Right. What am I going to do with the CD? 
what if I'm not going to be in the lobby? What if I'm going to um, yeah. a client meeting? Well, I'm not going to walk around. I'm not Ubering with a CD in my hand for the and next. And if you walk around, with, I always tell people, please don't give me a CD because if people see me holding one, they're going to ask me to take a hundred. Yeah, a hundred. Yeah. So, so I think, um, and so probably like the next natural question is, well, then what should you do? I don't know. I don't have the answer to, to, I'll just know when you do the right thing. You know, um, there's no prescription for this. I so. just had something stuffed in our mailbox about three months ago at home, and it didn't come versus, uh, via the USPS. Somebody looked us up online, figured mm-hmm. out our home address, and dropped off you know a manila envelope with a CD and stuff in our mailbox. Wow. Yeah. It was a little scary. That's a little much. I once got a dead rat. Did you really? Yeah, and it wow. didn't go in there to eat food and couldn't get out. I mean, it was a frozen rat in a bag. Uh. It was somebody that was trying to buy the company. And I well, at least they it. froze it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what made it easier to slice. Mm. Um, <laughs> Bria didn't like that. Um, how do music licensing companies parse out their time? And I realize you're not necessarily representative of everybody, but we're talking ballpark figures here. Uh, you know, uh, I wrote down, can you give us a breakdown? Like, you know, 10% is listening to music, 20% is doing the admin stuff like meta tagging or accounting, 70% of the time is pitching. Um, is it heavily it... skewed towards pitching? You know, that question was created for a company that only has one employee because there's division of labor, right? right? I mean, we have seven full-time employees. We have somebody that only does graphic arts for our commercial releases and manages the website. Um, Jacob Nathan exclusively does A&R. We have uh, somebody in Salem, Oregon, who used to work in the Phoenix office, but her husband got a transfer. She handles all of our quote requests and handles all of our contracts for when we're acquiring or administering music. Um, Dave and I, uh, we have tried to focus on our core competency, which is, um, is it the right music to sign? Um, Are we spending our money the right way? Um, Are we allocating our resources the right way? It's interfacing with clients and pitching music. So for Dave and myself, a lot of our time during the day is pitching music to clients. Why? Because we set it up that way, because we do it really well, right? And we want other people to excel in areas so that we can just focus on this piece of the business, right? So what's so. your best pickup line? Uh, and I say that facetiously, but let's say that you're going to a Guild of Music Supervisors event. That we've been, you actually introduced me to a person or two last time we bumped into each other at one of those, which I appreciated. Um, What's your best pickup line? You know there's a supervisor over there that's in your sphere. They're friends. Let's go, uh, you mentioned her name, uh, Susan Kent. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very tight with uh, um, the Houlihans because yeah. I think she worked for John for, for a couple years. Of years. Yeah. She, John's had many trainees that have gone on to bigger and better things. So you, you see Susan Kent at the bar and you walk up to her and say, well, I mean, I've known Season forever, right? So, so you had to meet her. I, but if I hadn't like, met her then, yeah. um, if I hadn't, if I, so if I'm approaching somebody new, mm-hmm. um, the truth is I'd probably get a referral as opposed to just cold call or walk up and introduce because a referral is worth its weight in gold. Um, and I don't have a lot of problems getting referrals. Like, so there's somebody that I don't know. I'm going to do a little research on LinkedIn. I'm going to do some research on Facebook, who's yeah. friends with who. Um, and then, and then I'm going to say, hey, you know, I'm going to say to one of my friends, hey, you know, or colleagues, I think I have something that XYZ music supervisor would find a value. 
Um, you you know I'm a straight shooter. Wouldn't waste anybody's time. Do you? Would you mind making a referral? Right. And uh, I would do it that way. So uh, that's my personal pr preferred way of doing it. It's the common sense um, right way, I think. But and, if but and if it comes back to you too, because they would flip the favor. You know, yeah, you would do it for them. Yeah, of course. Point. And and um, we're always mutually doing favors. I mean, and this is a very small, tight knit community, and um, I think the. A lot of people in this industry do have integrity and they want to see each other succeed and um, we're more than happy to help each other along the way and there's certainly people that I call that are clients but I also consider them friends and colleagues and I'll bounce ideas off them and say am I stepping in dog poop here or is this brilliant you know and um, and that's just part of it you know yeah. but let's go back to your question if I didn't know somebody and uh, and I was reaching out to them I would say Hey, I'm Jeff Freundlich. I'm the COO of Fervor Records. I don't know if you've heard about us, and this is what we do. We have one-stop licensing of authentic period recordings from the 1920s to present day. We've uh, worked with MTV in the past to launch artists across their platforms. Uh, we have Rockabilly Hall of Famers and guys with gold records, and we have 18-year-olds still living in their parents' basement. You know, um, I just like to find a way to earn your trust and win your ears. That, by the way, was an elevator speech. That's an elevator speech. <laughs> that yeah, was a really good. So um, you have to be prepared and you have to know um, what to do, kind of in that moment. You know, and it, and quite frankly, I've probably fallen on my face a ton of times too. And and when we started doing this in 2002, I used to drive out here. And half my meetings would cancel, right? Because they didn't know who I was. And I was cold calling at that time. And I didn't have referrals because I didn't know enough people. Right. And you don't, if you only know two people, you certainly don't want to ask them for a referral because if you lose that person, then you only have one person left, right? right? So, um, <laughs> so it's hard. It's an uphill climb. I mean, we still are pu pushing a 500-pound boulder up a steep hill every day. And everybody in this industry is. That is the reality of this industry. Uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because people get really frustrated that they can't get a return phone call from somebody like you um, or they find you hard to get to. And it's not because you're a jerk. You're an extremely nice guy and you're a champion of musicians because you are one. Thanks. And that's true for, you know, guys like Bob Mayer, so many of our, you know, industry friends that they 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 are the same as the people they sign. They just branched off into a different aspect of the industry, but they appreciate where they're at. They just don't have the time because you're busy pushing that boulder. Honestly, we're pushing the boulder every day, and I have a fiduciary responsibility to the songwriters whose music they have entrusted me with making them money and earning them dollars, and my primary focus is on them and getting their music placed. And if you happen to break through and get signed by us, the same applies to you. And you are part of that group. And every day I got to bust my butt to make you money because you trusted me with your music. That's um, the difference between an A library and what I call the trailer park libraries that just take stuff in mass numbers. The quality bar is lower. They make you, there are some companies out there that are um, asking musicians to do all the data entry, the meta tagging and stuff online. And, and I've gotten calls from members like, why didn't you tell us that this company was gonna make us spend an hour and a half per song doing this stuff? But group A, group B. Um, how are we doing on time? Okay, um, we're about five minutes, seven minutes away from uh, taking questions from you guys. So you can start posting them and Bria will write them down and feed them to me. Um, 
I remember you dishing up a killer quote at the road rally a few years ago, and it was about trust. And you said, it takes years to build trust, but only seconds to destroy it. That was such a great quote. Let's talk about that musician etiquette. We've touched on it a couple times today, but um, the fine line uh, of being graciously pushy or just pushy, you know? Uh, yeah. How, how do you, how do they learn that? Um, Look, everybody's going to fall on their face a couple times. That's, that is, I mean, that's just part of learning. And uh, I don't, I can't teach, there's no secret sauce. I think everybody has to find their own way to be the best version of themselves when they have that opportunity, you know? And um, it's kind of weird because if you're if you're overly anxious and you're trying too hard, it's kind of like a turnoff, right? And I think it's you kind of- bad dating. Yeah, it's bad <laughs> dating. And um, you almost have to kind of look at it that way. And I think if you were to practice, uh, the way to practice would, I mean, literally stand in front of the mirror and try it out on yourself or videotape yourself, right? And see is, how you sound. Is that you know? like kissing your stuffed animal <laughs> yeah. before a date when you're 50? Well, I mean, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, and I, you know, I know it sounds silly. I, we do a lot of like role play like that at work. Like, so for example, if we're pitching music for Fox Sports, yeah. Dave, my business partner, will play a track and I'll say, greetings from Safeco Field. Today it's the Seattle Mariners versus the New York Yankees in a three-game series. Well, why? Because we're practicing to see if it actually, if the music works with the, with the, the scene or the tone or, the, or, or yeah. the pace of what sports is all about, right? Well, it's the same thing. There's a, there's a cadence to meeting somebody new for the first time and there's a way to conduct yourself and, uh, and that takes practice and that's a totally different skill set than... Um, writing music or whatever. And if you don't do it well, then find somebody that does. Somebody, but that's a great point because some people are born with the ability to do it. Other people, it has to be more of a, an acquired skill, a learned skill. Um, you know who's really good at it? Who? Taxi member Bill Gordon. Yeah. That guy is as cool as a cucumber. <laughs> I mean, I love that guy. And you just feel like you're talking to a guy, you know, like it's not, it's not like this regimented, like, tense like stiff right you know it's just like hey man you know i can tell you guys you guys if you've ever been to a road rally you've met bill gordon he's the guy at the beginning of at the head of the registration line that goes next okay over there to position number one bill gordon volunteers and does that for us every year he's part of the family here and uh, he is he's just inherently smooth it's inherently smooth <laughs> and it took about five years for me to convince him to do a project for us, wow! And uh, and he did. He did an, a, an incredible jazz trio. Um, and actually, it's available on iTunes. So go look up Bill Gordon on iTunes. And uh, we got him two placements in the Glass Castle with Woody Harrelson. He's been on numerous TV shows like The Mindy Project. Um, we, we've done really well by him. So he's such a talented guy too. Follow up etiquette. Uh, okay. This is. A question that's been around since the dawn of the music industry. Okay, so I just found out that my music was uh, forwarded to you by taxi and um, people because of Google. We used to actually tell everybody up until a couple of years ago that your music was forwarded to your company or Atlantic Records or wherever. And it became so problematic with people Googling um, and getting too much information on people. And then Oh, we had a Bonnie Greenberg incident where somebody reached out to Bonnie Greenberg on her home phone. We just had one with a music supervisor in Canada about 
two or three months ago where the member called this woman on her home phone and then I think if memory serves bitched her out it's like yeah and Bonnie Greenberg called me and said I will never ever 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 again or maybe it's Kathy Nelson but somebody you know mm-hmm. like one of those top big tier. shot yeah very big shot and they said never again will I run a listing with your company because a member tracked them down called them up and was like well why aren't you using it even if you did that in a nice tone of voice like why aren't you using it? <laughs> um, it, it they, they don't want to get that phone call at home. They don't want to get that phone call at work. Ever, yeah. ever. I mean, I can't speak for other companies. Anything that's forwarded to us genuinely gets listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what other companies do. I don't know what their you know process is. Or, but um, we will call you or email you if if we think that we can do justice with your music. If it might be the greatest piece of music in the world, if we don't think we're the right company for it, right. we're not gonna reach out, right? So, uh, you know, we have some like really good avant-garde jazz, and um, was it a mistake for us to sign it? Um, there was, Actually, one was from a, a taxi writer over 10 years ago, and it's this incredible fusion piece. Um, in some respects, though, I regret that we signed it only because we've never gotten it placed because fusion really doesn't come up for film and TV, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's just, it's usually more traditional jazz or um, it's cool jazz or maybe it's like bop or something like that, right? And it just so happens that this particular piece of music that is so representative of the 1970s, um, it's just not asked for a lot, right? So yeah. we've learned from that. Well, why would we sign it if we can't, we want our reputation to be as good as possible, right? So, and this is on the uh, library side, actually. This is not on the on the record label side where we're, you know, uh, doing marketing for the artist and, and commercially releasing and, and XYZ. And uh, so it's a good lesson for us, right? Well, why would we sign music if we really couldn't do anything with it? Because the writers and the artists are just going to be frustrated. That's their baby, yeah. right? So Well, they do get paid up front. Well, of course, yeah. But, so but even so, yeah. But, but, I mean, we're signing it because we believe in it and we think we can get it placed and, and do something with it or be a springboard for somebody's career um, in a meaningful way, you know? So, I mean, the, the work begins after we've signed it, right? So the, an artist might think, oh, well, I'm done now. I signed it and I'll just do the next thing. But for us, we've made a financial commitment and we've said, well, we think it's more important to sign this piece of music than this piece of music because there's mm-hmm. not an unlimited amount of money. And uh, so if, we, if we're if we not exploiting, and I mean exploiting in a good way by syncing the, the music and getting it placed, then, um, then we haven't really done our job, you know? Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, where would you license that? I mean, it would be, that's a, a once every five years possibility. Yeah, yeah it is. That, that happens to be a slim one. So. Uh, what you got, Bria? Oh, there, I changed it from the While she's handing them over, uh, what's the ratio of what you pitch versus what gets used? So this is something I say at the Road Rally every year, um, and it is the honest-to-God truth. We're on TV seven days a week, and we hear no 95% of the time. That is the God's honest truth. And there are some music supervisors that say, I only want you to send me five suggestions for this particular scene because they don't want to be overwhelmed and they want you to curate. Um, There are other music supervisors that say, look, we know we're going to need a lot of this type of music. 
um, because there's a diner scene that they keep going back to. Mm. And uh, we're going to need a lot of country music from the 1970s, as an example. So um, so then we'll pull a larger bucket. Uh, but even if we sent over 50 songs from the 1970s country, um, maybe only seven of them will be used. Right. right? So I think the I think like the corollary to this part of the conversation is there is an. I think there's a fantasy amongst artists and writers that if they sign with us, there's almost like an equal distribution of placements across the catalog. Um, But there's not because some genres are requested more than others. And even within that genre, some pieces of music just have magic. There's a a taxi writer named Craig Marsden who is an amazing guitar player and sings like Mickey Thomas. And he's phenomenal. He had a song in The Disaster Artist through us. When somebody's looking for late 70s rock, even if we pitch 10 things, most of the time, Craig Craig's music is part of that final consideration. Mm-hmm. Why? Because there's something magical about it. I don't know why. If I if I really knew, I would only sign those those songs, right? There's uh, something that works, right? Which there's... takes me to one of the questions I didn't get to, which is the, the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. That uh, is it generally true that 80% of your income probably comes from 20% of your catalog? You know, it's probably, the odds are probably a little bit better for the writers out in Taxiland than 80-20, but yes, I would say that um, it could be um, 65-35, you know, it's like, I I think that's a fair assessment, uh, because there are some pieces of music that, um, for whatever reason, just work, and even if we're pitching and I, I same examples with Craig. Even if we're pitching, you know, ten amazing rockabilly songs, there might be one or two that just rise to the top. Um, maybe it's the theme of the song. You know, maybe it's the um, it's the lyric. Maybe because it's not about love and it's about being together, or right. uh, you know, or maybe it's um, it just has a killer sax line in it that um, just feels like it could have been Bill Haley in the Comets, or you know, I mean, whatever it is, you know. So yeah, there's an unequal dis- distribution. Uh, fairy dust is hard to understand. Yeah, it's hard to understand. Uh, it's you can spot it, but you can't recreate it. But I'll tell you this: if you were a writer and and producer, and, and those are two different things, yeah. right? But if, so really, if you're a producer of music, you will have the tools in your toolbox that increase the chances of getting that magic fairy dust. So yeah. for example, if you're going into a chorus, you probably wanna think about dropping out a lot of instruments going into that chorus. Why? Because it builds tension, mm-hmm. and then when that chorus hits, right? And it just, that's how you create the tingles on the on yeah. your spine, right? So. Um, I can't always it not every song is going to have it and but and we recognize it as fans of music and listeners of music but the truth is the way that you create that magic fairy dust I don't want to say it's formulaic but there those tools and those tricks are out there and if you're willing to do the work and dig in or if you're willing to analyze music on a meaningful level right and really study it and listen to the radio and listen 20 times and analyze how how are they doing this how are they creating this moment don't you feel sorry for our wives because <laughs> I, my wife and i cannot make it through a tv show without me commenting about every piece oh of yeah I, why it's, it's there why it works now I, now i watch tv with my wife and she'll go ah oh, they paid a fortune for that you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's literally how our conversations go at night so. yeah at our house it's Background source or yeah. feature, you know, yeah, totally. all, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, 
most requested genres. And I am going to get to your questions momentarily, but you mentioned some genres just get more play than others. Okay, um, so are we talking about library or are we talking about record label type stuff? Or uh, let's go for library stuff, just because more of our members do it. Library. So um, I would say there's a huge need for up-tempo hip hop. Okay. Um, a lot of the hip hop we listen to. Um, doesn't make the grade because it sounds like it's 10 years old. It doesn't sound like Drake. Right. Um, so they're not, the, the people are composing based on what they grew up with as opposed to um, what's current. Which is endemic through all genres, but even yeah. more so there. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be anywhere, anybody, right? right? I mean, we, we gravitate towards what we gravitate yeah, to. It, it becomes part of our anatomy almost. But that's the difference between being a composer and an amateur, right? right? So if you're it's a composer... Great delineation. Yeah, so, and... Um, we get um, requests for a lot of up-tempo rock. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a lot of requests for tension. And uh, that could be everything from fully orchestrated type pieces to very sparse pieces. Right, um, like almost drone-like. Yeah, yeah. Dr and, and sometimes, yeah, and when you say drone, let's not assume it's like a synthesizer. It could just be guitar work that right. is delicately handled that builds tension or, or whatever. Um, really simple, but... Lays there, doesn't have a lot of movement, but yeah, yeah. It, it makes you perspire. And and for us, and I just want to reiterate this if I haven't said this, regardless if we're talking about production music or if we're talking about uh, indie artists that we're vetting, we're just looking for great songs. We know great songs will be licensed. So it, it's not, we're not always thinking in terms of, well, it has to be this or it has to be that. You give me a great song. I will get that song placed. That's not an issue. The issue is finding the great song regardless of the genre. And once again, because he just opened himself up to it, for those of you who are watching this, whether live today or after the fact, if you're going to just Google Jeff and think, I've got a great song, he's got to hear it. Everybody thinks they've got a great song and he really, really, really doesn't have the time to be inundated. But we do run listings for these guys all the time. Sometimes the listings will even, sometimes Jeff will call me in like November and say, you know what, we've got budget left to, to spend at the end of the year. Can you put out a broad listing looking for anything great that's old? Yep, and, absolutely. And, and I mean, I'm more than happy to do that right now. It's like, if it's great, send it in. If it's, if it's vintage and it's even good, Send it in um, right. because I'll we trust Taxi list. and we, you know, and, and we're we're here to sign. So. Can you write that on a post-it note? Write a, uh, a broad listing for Jeff next week, please. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so the questions from the audience are: uh, Are twenty-four hour turnarounds the norm or the exception? So, in my book, if we get a music pitch from a music supervisor. 24 hours is too late. We're getting back to a music supervisor within an hour or two. Um, that's why we get the cut. So um, 24 hours, it's probably already pivoted two or three times. Mm -hmm. um, and so the value that a company like us, and there's other companies out there as well, spe specifically as it relates to film and TV, is that because we're aggregators of music and we have a lot of music, music supervisors are gonna call us and say, hey, you know what, we just tried acoustic blues that you sent, it's not working, we gotta pick up the pace, let's try something that's uh, electric and let's make it more Chicago blues and we're gonna see how that works, right? In 24 hours, we might have pitched three times for the same scene. So it, when the question is, well, is 24 hours the norm? I would say, get it in sooner and faster 
um, and make sure whatever it is that you're pitching is dead on. I think it's very easy to get into like this fantasy delusional mode. Oh, this is almost what they want. But um, and they're going to hear it and think it's so great that they're going to change their their scope the, of right. what they're looking for. The because, director right. of this three million dollar episodic TV episode is going to stop everything and recut, right? You know, because this thing is so good, right? Yes. And it just doesn't work that way. So I'm so glad you brought. Yeah. That up. So I we're here to serve so the scene, right? Um, Hope that helps. Scott King asks, uh, I had a song for it that has a very short three-piece horn section. Uh, it was completely my arrangement, my instructions, and I paid them for their time. What release do I need from them, from the horn players? So we generally ask for um, talent releases that claim that uh, they have been paid once and uh, are due no further uh compensation. How do you deal with that in, in the context of vintage music where some of the guys could be dead? With um, Well, let me just finish about the okay. talent release real fast and then we'll go to that. All so right. um, so the talent release usually will have a name and likeness clause as well. So this way, and I mean, you can you know, call an IP attorney and you can probably get one for 150 bucks. Um, if somebody is signing your music, uh, they will probably ha provide one for you. Um, that's kind of industry standard that uh, that their particular legal team feels comfortable with using. At least we do that. Um, so there, there's really a couple components. Hey, this was work for hire, this performance. You got paid. This is how much you got paid. You're not getting paid anymore. And we've got name and likeness, which means that if we were to commercially release it on CD, we could say, hey, horns by this guy, that guy, and this and the other guy, and uh, you can't sue us for using your name in a in a context right. you know, inappropriate. So for vintage music and talent releases, um, we a lot of these guys have to go back to band members or they will go to the estates of dead band, dead, dead band members good and name, say, good hey. Good name for a group, by the yeah, way. Yeah, really. And, uh, and try to get sign off. And if they can't get sign off, then we'll have a very long conversation with them about what an indemnity clause is and uh, and what it means to take risk and we'll assess risk on our side and say, hey, is it, does this make sense to move forward even if they couldn't get a talent release from the drummer because the drummer is dead? Um, you know, and, and there's a certain amount of risk that I think is tolerable and, and allowable and then there's uh, a certain amount of risk that's not. And so we'll assess that individually um, on a case by case basis and, and decide what makes sense. So hypothetically, somebody who passed away a few years ago and they played bass on this piece of music in the 60s. Um, the wife, let's say, is the survivor and she technically uh, controls the estate. And she remembers that when her husband played bass on that session in the 60s, he came home and said, Johnny and I wrote a killer song today because in his mind, his bass part was so, um, what's the word, central, thematically central to the melody and the, and the vibe of the song that he felt that he co-wrote it, although the copyright, copyright was only registered in the other person's name. So now this lady goes to the movies and she hears the song and she goes, that sounds, oh my gosh, that's the song my husband co-wrote. And she waits for the credits and she sees Johnny's name go by and her husband's name is not in there. And the next thing you get is a letter from a lawyer. Um, wow, this is like, uh, I mean, this has never actually happened. Okay, so but, that, that um, was my question is, yeah, but does I'll that stuff happen? When, when these writers and artists start having success, you would be amazed at how people come out of the woodwork. And so, and that's why we're really upfront about this 
before we sign anything. It's like, hey, well, are you, do you have a relationship with these guys or, or, or women? Or, you know, did things end badly? And, and we'll always say, you know, you have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here. Maybe you should share the writer's share and share in the success mm-hmm. of what this band created as opposed to being selfish and saying, nope, it's all mine. Um, I mean, it's that. So you take care of these things up front so that they don't become an issue later. Uh, I can't even imagine how much work you guys do on the upfronts to sign the, the vintage stuff that you do. It's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. It's got to be way more than what a normal library would do. Oh, yeah, for sure. Wow. Um, all right, we've still got some time. Yay. Uh, Finn Tamalonis asks, uh, what is the first contact like when you sign somebody to your library? Meaning you have decided to sign a piece of music and you contact them. What do you say or what do you need to accomplish? So usually we want the backstory. That's the first thing. We say, hey, I'm Jeff Freundlich, or and really Jacob does a lot of this now as our creative director of A&R. Um, not sure if you were aware that your song was forwarded from Taxi. I mean, obviously we know that it was, but it's kind of a polite way to do this. Mm-hmm. And and say, hey, if you have like 10 or 15 minutes, I'd really like to talk to you. Um, you know, we think that uh, this piece is uh, engaging and dynamic in the right ways. And here's what we do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this music? You know, where were you when you recorded it? What year did you record it in? Um, you know, kind of, we just want to get some stories because the stories help guide us to figure out what the next question is in terms of ownership, right? Or, oh, well, so you had managers back then? And so how did that work? Or, oh, you had a, a demo deal with a record label? And what years were that? And what did that contract look like? Or, oh, you were signed to a publishing deal. Well, did it cover everything written between these years, right? And so we start doing detective work. Um, and uh, kind of ki- right before that phone call, we're probably going up on YouTube and we're seeing if we can find it. Was it released by a label? Um, we're probably going to copyright.gov mm-hmm. and seeing if there are copyrights registered on it. And we're doing kind of all this due diligence and then we're having a conversation. Um, and then that usually leads to a second conversation, which is, hey, let's kind of go through the entire process, soup to nuts, of what our deal looks like, how it works, um, the advantages and disadvantages of doing you know, business with us and what other opportunities might be out there. And if you feel really good about who we are, if there's no trust, no deal is going to get done, right? right? So our goal is always to operate with integrity and answer questions honestly. And, um, and if they feel good about us and they can sleep at night uh, knowing that they've signed our deal and they understand how it works and it's not get rich quick and this is a marathon and it's not a sprint and it takes time and uh, there's a good chance your music could be used in a violent scene and you won't have control over that. Once you've signed with us, right, if somebody asks for music, uh, we're going to pitch that music when that genre or style is asked for what about um, in an x-rated movie because no had, x-rated movies we had one incident yeah. uh, in our 26 year history where a member um forgot to check a box that said don't put it in any porn and it ended up in porn well yeah we know we don't do anything like that um that's not that's not part of our agenda and uh but you know it's like i'll get i'll tell you the first song that i ever wrote that got placed in a tv show uh, was the show called The Shield, which ran on FX, starring Michael Chiklis. And uh, it was a song I wrote, it was an R&B song called My Man, and it was over a rape scene. Uh, and man. I couldn't like sit down with my mom and be like, mom, my music's on TV, right? You know, it was like literally, right? So, um, but quite frankly, that was the, I signed a deal and I quite frankly pitched it for that 
seen, right? Um, you know, as as on the business side. So the thing is, is that if you sign with us, there is a chance that your music will be used. Um, it could be used over something sexual or something violent. And so, I mean, we really walk through soup to nuts what this is going to look like because we don't want anybody having bad feelings later they on. They call us after you guys have had that conversation. We probably get I don't know three, four calls a quarter from people that, uh, and ultimately they make it to me, and the question is, should I sign with these guys? And my answer to that is, if I had music, I'd want it. There are three or four companies that I say this for, and you guys are one of them, Bob's another one of them, where I say, if I made music, I would sign with this company. Oh, thank you, I appreciate because that. Because I know how you operate. Yeah, and, and thank you. It, well, it's because I know you. Um, and also because I know you, every time I think of you playing guitar, I think of a stripper rock. Oh, <laughs> that's hilarious. Because you once played a piece that you did at the road rally that was, uh, I think it ended up in a scene with a girl on a, dancing in a pole. We, we, I mean, we're, we've we're, done very well with like kind of sunset strip, glam yeah. metal, poison right. type stuff. Exactly. And, um, so yeah, so I wrote, um, actually it's available on iTunes, Chinatown, Taking It Sleazy. It's a great record, and it's been in a bunch of you know Adam Sandler films and a bunch of network TV shows. And um, yeah, his music yeah. supervisor was at the Red Rally last year. Brooks Arthur. Oh, uh, cool. Was part of that movie, Bang the Bird Burn story. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and Brooks, uh, oh, uh, serious. I was like a little boy, you know, looking <laughs> up at my idol. I, I was almost embarrassed. That's cool. Um, it just, I, I, I melt when I meet people like that. He's legendary. Uh, any other questions? Thank the you. All right. Uh, yeah, we can squeeze a couple more in here. L. Harrison asks, when you get forwarded in the beginning of a career, uh, forwarded by taxi, I guess, uh, is it always the procedure to follow up email phone calls in a diligent but respectful way? We, okay, we, so we already I think, talked about that. yeah, I mean, to be clear, if we get a forward, we do not want a phone call or an email from you. And it's not because we don't like you, it's because we're totally overwhelmed and we're all focused on our own stuff. If we think we can make um, money and create opportunities with your music, we will be in touch with you. Um, so it's not it's not a personal thing, it is quite literally a time management thing and we just can't be on the phone 24 seven um, with, you know, uh, with something that was forwarded. But we'll get in touch with you if we like it. To put things in perspective, I obviously, Jeff and I know each other well. We trust each other a lot. If I were going to where he lives and my hotel room fell out, I arrived, they said, sorry, we don't have a room for you. I could call Jeff, I presume, and say, Jeff, totally. can I crash at your house? And yeah. you could do the same with me. hundred bucks a night. Right. <laughs> but I literally call him three, four times a year. And when I call him, generally, it's under a one-minute conversation. And, it, you know, it's... That's how little time that people in our industry have. Yeah, and I would say that's true of like, even if you're just looking for career advancement in general in any industry, it's like you really have to kind of be compact because people don't have time, right? So you yeah. have to just kind of get it out quickly because um, you got to move on to the next thing, so. It, it, it is scary how much work, not to pat myself on the back, but in a weekend, I, I will get somewhere between eight and 20 hours of work done. Mm -hmm. In yeah. a weekend. I know. I'm answering emails at 6 a.m., yeah. 11 o'clock at night. When I'm not checking my email, my business partner checks it because all the searches come through my email. Um, and so, I mean, we're just kind of religious and about you have to be, 
if you're not first or second when the pitch comes in, they might have already found the piece of music that they want to use. So there's a certain amount of effort that is required to stay on top of it. Um, Brian West asks, I create music and rely on work for hire musicians remotely for vocals and drums at a minimum. Uh, anything I should pay attention to in the process of library submissions? So, you know, to me, and you know, it really just comes down to, is the music being served? Um, and it depends on the genre and and what you're writing for. But you know, if 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 you are trying to emulate the Black Keys, and you have a drummer that's in a studio, let's just say in Canada, right? You know, and, and they're kind of recording and then sending you the the session at Dumpin' a Pro Tools. Then I think that one of the things you would want to think about is well. Are they using a kit similar to uh, what the Black Keys would use? Or are they um, kind of playing the song the way that, are they overly aggressive or too under aggressive? Um, is, it, is it really matching up with kind of like the vibe and, and tone of the artist that you are, I don't want to say emulating, but you know clearly there's a need for what's popular on the rock charts as an example. Um, and with vocalists, and we touched about this a little bit earlier, you know, is the vocalist over singing? Are they pitchy? If you're, if you have to use like Melodyne to tune everything, you probably have the wrong vocalist. Um, are they doing too many runs? Have they not established the melody? Um, those things matter. Um, and you know, are they in the pocket or are they ahead of the song? Um, all those things really make a difference. And you, even in the library world, you know, you're competing against, I mean, there are, so there's some incredible music in music libraries yeah. and you're competing against them. So you have to assume that your need, yours needs to be the best rock song um, because not only within the library that you're signing with, but in the landscape, because that music supervisor or music editor probably reached out to 12 different companies for the same scene. So not only do you have to be the best in the library you're working with, you've got to be the best in all the libraries. That's literally how, how you have to think about it. I got an email from a taxi member, uh, I think over the course of the weekend, and it was a little heartbreaking to me because I know this guy well. Um, you may even know him, but it's somebody who's very good, who's very respectful, you know, he's a pro. And he said, I'm frustrated with taxi. I'm thinking about not renewing because I get, I went through a period of not getting forwarded. Well, we went and looked at the stuff he was pitching to and it was extremely high bar. He's, he's a library person who was pitching at record stuff. Mm -hmm. And just because you've been forwarded to a lot of libraries, signed by libraries, and placed in shows by libraries does not mean that the music you're making is like records. There is a difference. And he was frustrated that when he does get forwarded, it seems to be going into a black hole. And you just touched on it. Um, when we forward his stuff to supervisors uh, and libraries, um, with a library, they have a, a process that they may they reach out to us and they're looking for something but between the time when they tell us they need it and the time when you get forwarded to them a bunch of other stuff hits their fan and they get busy and they go okay well i can listen to that at any point in the future so it may lay there on their desktop in a file for weeks or months yeah and in the case of a supervisor it's what you just said which is they're getting stuff from 5 10 12 15 other sources and i i know that this gentleman thinks he can see the visual of the supervisor getting the music from taxi and thinking, this is great. You know that visual. I can see yeah. by the look on your face. But there are 
72 other pieces of music. And if you don't hear anything in pretty short order, it didn't get used. Well, and let's take it, let's make it one step worse. Okay. The music supervisor might love it, but the director might not love it. Right. Right. And the directors probably has final cut or maybe the producers do. Right. Absolutely. So even if you could have the music supervisor advocating for you all day long, but um, they, 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 that's not where the final cut lies. Right. Absolutely. So um, it's a really hard industry. Um, it's hard because it's emotional because music is emotional. So it's different than, you know, making pens or whatever, you know. So, um, you know, big pens, their, their goal is just to like have this soft blue pen that works really well and you can buy it for like 69 cents, you know. Music you pour your heart and soul into. And it's hard when you get a forward and then you don't get the placement in the TV show, but you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? I right. mean, it's- To them, it's a black hole, it's an abyss, but they don't know. In advertising, for instance, I once, uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I mixed a bunch of top of the line commercials for years in New York as an audio post engineer. I would see how many changes and how many people that would go through. The so, pivots. Yeah. yeah, I once figured out there was like 16 people in the chain before you actually make it into an aired commercial. Yeah. That's a hard. lot of people. It's really hard. And the pivots. But you know what? <laughs> go for it. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, if that's your thing, just do it and take the bulls by the horn and keep getting better and don't give up and don't quit and have thick skin because you're going to need it. Absolutely. And this world is cruel and indifferent. It's it's cruel because it's indifferent and nobody cares about you is the bottom. It's like the like you have to take it upon yourself to get better, to stay motivated, to write better music, to have higher production value, to carry yourself the right way in a business meeting or when you're introducing. Really important. Um, it's really true. And um, and, I, and that's what I like about taxi members because I think they've kind of said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of throwing my hat in the ring. And what I'm saying is like, throw your hat in the ring deeper. Do like take it one more level up and take it a level past that. I know a lot more about music publishing now than I did 12 years ago or 15 years right. ago, right? And I started doing this in 2002. And if you've been a taxi member for, for several years and you're not growing as a writer, your production value is not getting stronger, that's on you. Because nobody else is going to do it for you. I mean, that is the, it is like the, just everybody needs to hear it because it's, it's true. And, and the people that I know that have been successful, they have, whether they're writers or music supervisors or directors or somebody like you, they've all worked their tails off to continuously improve. Yeah. How can I keep getting better? How can I, how can I take this one more level higher? Absolutely. Um, and you know what? There's a misconception that guys like Jeff or guys like me or people like our screeners or music supervisors are trying to keep people out that they said they're going, <laughs> I'm trying to lift people up. Right, exactly. We're all looking for great music because we get a thrill out of finding great music and knowing that the person who created it gets paid for doing what they love. I've never met anybody in 40 some years of being in the industry that wanted to keep anybody out. Not one. I've met some Less than wonderful people, but they haven't been trying to keep anybody out. Um, uh, I want to mention that next week's show is Engineering and Production Tips with Ronan Chris Murphy, who's always a rock star when he's here on the show. Jeff, thank you so much for coming yeah, out my here, pleasure. man. Yeah. Uh, it's like the dude gets on a plane. All I have to do is say, <laughs> get on a plane, and he comes. This time, he actually suggested, would you ever like me to come out and be on the show? So with that, thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, Mr. Jeff Freundlich, we will see you guys next week for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live.
production at its finest. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, you guys. Thanks for watching. <laughs>